I was more comfortable programming strength power than I was programming endurance. So you sort of project that bias onto your population. It doesn't help the fact that most dudes and females in the tactical space prefer to do weightlifting, speed power type stuff, get jacked, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of this, po- this positive feedback loop. Welcome to Mops and Mo's podcast. My name is Drew. I'm Alex. And this is episode two. Today, we're talking about strength versus endurance as it pertains to tactical athletes and whether or not we would consider tactical athletes to be predominantly strength-based endurance athletes or endurance-based strength athletes. We've got a lot of people who want to train like powerlifters. We've got a lot of people who want to train like marathon runners. We know that the right answer is somewhere in between. So we're trying to figure out where that balance is. It kind of just stopped. Yeah. Whatever. I guess you said enjoy last time. Stay tuned to find out. Don't go listen to Joe Rogan. We're going to talk about some stuff. Well, now I'm curious. For you to tell me the direction that I'm probably going to go. I think your assertion is tactical athletes or endurance athletes need to be strong. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with that. So I guess I'll start with my position statement. So with regards to the age old question, which is what this particular episode is about, are tactical athletes endurance athletes or are tactical athletes strength athletes? I will, I will say that I, I started from the mindset that they were strength power athletes. And I think for sort of some context, most, most strength and condition coaches are either in the strength power camp or the endurance camp. And I don't even know if endurance coaches would call themselves strength and conditioning coaches, but that's probably a different conversation. Anyway, back to the original question which one are they? I used to think that they were strength power athletes, but in hindsight, if I look back to where my headspace was at that time, I would think that the reason for that was more because I was more comfortable programming strength power than I was programming endurance. So you sort of project that bias onto your population. It doesn't help the fact that most dudes and females in the tactical space prefer to do weightlifting, speed power type stuff, get jacked, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of this, this positive feedback loop of like, yeah, let's get jacked. Let's get strong. I can list off dozens of deployments that I've trained guys for where they would try to do that thousand pound club thing. I can't think of a single deployment where guys trained for like a one mile race. I'm rambling here, but I think I have now shifted gears probably in the last three, four, five years or so to where I would argue that tactical athletes are in fact endurance athletes or should have an endurance bias with an adequate level of strength to complete whatever the task is, as opposed to the other way around being super freaking jacked and strong and being able to like just barely pass whatever PT test they have to do for their branch. Yeah. And I think 
I think the context matters. And I think there's definitely like a pendulum effect that goes on in units as you insert strength and conditioning coaches into them. I think traditionally, especially in conventional units where oftentimes they don't have access to any kind of equipment for a lot of their PT guys can build a pretty decent endurance base if they're training decently. Um, and you get a lot of guys who just are not meeting that threshold of strength that you talked about. Um, so that's very real. And the APFT definitely contributed to a culture of like thinking that only muscular endurance and aerobic capacity matter. And like, that's imbalanced too. Cause you got guys who can do like 50 or 60 pushups and zero pull-ups. So you got some problems going on there. I wasn't there for this, but my understanding is that when raw got implemented, they had the pendulum swing too far in the strength and power direction and started to see like a, an uptick in the rate of guys failing their five mile runs. And I think that goes back to what you said is like coaches come in comfortable in a certain thing. And if those coaches came from a sport background, depending on the sport, especially if it's football, they're going to be really comfortable in a weight room slinging barbells around, and they're not going to be as comfortable with figuring out conditioning modalities that are appropriate for tactical professionals. Well, I think too, I mean, and we kind of already touched on this, but, um, it's arguably easier to program strength training than it is to program endurance, unless you're the type of coach who has a background in track and field, in which case that's way more your speed, no pun intended. But I mean, you know, the thing that always sells with strength and conditioning is, is the weight room and the gym. And like, look at all the things we have, all the toys, all the gadgets, like we can do farmer's carries we can do log lifts we can do reverse hypers we can do you know this that and the other and endurance is always just like throw on a pair of shoes and go run so there's no there's no real sexiness to it um it's the instagram problem right it's yeah exactly yeah it's hard to film your mile pr for your 5k pr because for most of the time you're not in front of your phone you're out you know 5k away from wherever you started so, yeah, I think that drives some of the misconceptions, if you will. And again, this is not to say that tactical athletes should not be strong. Like, you know, I've seen plenty of dudes that would go out and run an ultra on the weekend, but they can't deadlift their body weight. I don't think that's the right answer. But I think if given the choice of having a guy that was aerobically sound and like decent at lifting versus a guy that could deadlift, you know, triple body weight, but not run. I would take the former versus the latter. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we're, we're at risk of swinging too far in the strength and power direction right now, not just because of inserting strength coaches into units, but also like the, the nature of the ACFT and the way it's scored kind of it, it falsely treats each of those components of fitness that it tests as equal. Um, that's kind of unavoidable with any kind of testing, you know, as you start doing like weighted events and all sorts of stuff like that. But because of that, if you're a really strong dude, you can run a 21 minute, two mile and still score five sixty, And that, that looks pretty stellar in terms of fitness, but like I, I checked it last night, like what VO two max correlates with a 21 minute, two mile. And it's, like in the very poor category, <laughs> like you're not Wait, 21 minute, two mile. What is that? 1030 per mile. What does that break down to for a 400? 
three minutes. Yeah. Yeah, you got to be, you could probably walk that aggressively if you wanted to. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but the point is, and I think, so, you know, we, the question on the table, are tactical athletes or should tactical athletes rather be, be strength athletes or endurance athletes? It's probably worth diving into some of the reasons why the endurance component is beneficial, regardless of if your intent is to run an ultra or not. And I think that's one of the hurdles for me on the coaching side of things. It was just kind of an, a misunderstanding of the why and the how behind it. Because again, like, you know, you read all these strength and conditioning books, there's a huge emphasis on strength. Occasionally, you'll read something about like the physiology behind building your aerobic base and like, you know, capillary density and all that sort of thing. But you will not dive nearly as deep into the architecture of programming as you will with strengths. You know, there's like Prilipin's chart, everybody knows, and like rep schemes for hypertrophy, rep schemes for strength, rep schemes for strength endurance, which I fundamentally disagree with all of those, which we'll talk about that, you know, at some point, I'm sure more than once. But anyway, point being, most of the strength coaches you encounter could recite all of that and give you the name of the Russian behind it and explain everything, you know, to a T. But if you ask them to construct an interval session or a tempo session or, you know, a low intensity steady state session or explain an aerobic base or explain VO2 max, they're just kind of at a loss. And so I think, again, that's one of those reasons why we see guys just defaulting to building stronger athletes. But what goes on underappreciated, I suppose, is the fact that by building your aerobic base and being more robust aerobically, you're able to handle more training volume overall, which kind of allows you to, you know, vector towards a higher level of fitness, regardless of what your goal is. So if, if for some reason it is to deadlift double body weight or triple body weight or, you know, squat, double, whatever strength goal you want to put here, having a bigger aerobic base, if I have two athletes at the same level, one is more aerobically sound than the other, the more aerobically sound athlete has the work capacity to handle the volume load required to reach the strength goal that he has in mind versus if you had the same athlete and one had this massive like well of strength that doesn't necessarily lend itself to being aerobically sound. If any of that made sense, I realized I just rambled for a while. No, I think it made sense. Um, I think the like the key points to articulate, I think the most important one you made is that building a bigger aerobic base will lead to ability to tolerate more volume, whether that volume is aerobic conditioning or strength work. Um, and I think it's, it just comes back to the fact, and like you've kind of hammered this a lot in our conversations, but the fact that everything is aerobic and oh, like, regardless of what chart you look at, but I think even if people want to have a conversation about like anaerobic capacity, aerobic capacity, all that kind of stuff, energy systems, whatever, I don't want to trigger you, but <laughs> But even if people want to use that model, it's still absolutely the case that recovery from everything is entirely aerobic. And so if, if we're trying to train people to be able to withstand more volume and be able to withstand multiple day operations and like 
deal with load carriage for long periods of time and then conduct actions on the objective, whatever it looks like for their job, their ability to endure all of that and still be able to demonstrate the strength they've developed is going to entirely rely on their aerobic base and their ability to recover from submaximal anything. Well, that's a good point too, because one of the counter arguments, I guess, that I hear sometimes is guys being like, well, you know, I, I jump out of the helicopter, I kick in the door, I do all this, you know, we could call it strength power stuff. I'm never really running 10 miles or, you know, in some cases, I'm never really even rucking that long to get to the objective. And okay, fine, fair enough. But to your point just there, it's like, so that individual expression of strength exists. No one is saying that it doesn't. Like, yes, being strong will be helpful. But what the aerobic component is going to assist with is completing that mission over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, such that you don't end up completely wasted at the end of, you know, a week of that type of stuff or an entire deployment. Or if we go even longer term with this, like as dudes get into their kind of senior years, there's a lot to be said in the literature about the benefits of having an aerobically sound physiological system. So again, I know it sounds like we're kind of standing on a soapbox, just preaching like, Hey, everybody should go run. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that we can get into the programming side of it, but, um, paying more attention to, to that type of work, at least in my opinion, having seen kind of both sides of the coin, paying more attention to that type of stuff has far more benefit than paying a ton of attention to just the resistance side of things. The thresholds we're talking about are important to kind of like set a baseline at. We're not saying it's not important to be able to deadlift at least your body weight or probably a lot more than that. Like the, the strength spectrum obviously goes way beyond like passing scores on any strength assessment that any tactical unit has just like the endurance spectrum goes way beyond passing scores on any endurance assessment like the army being an obvious example like people run two miles way faster than 13 minutes and people lift way more than 340 pounds in a deadlift it's it's totally achievable to max both of those things we're just saying like what should be a priority after that kind of like i think it's and like talking to different people different different size humans different like genetics and different potential. I'm not saying everybody needs to max all the events and then worry about what they do after that, but they're depending on their job. And like, we've both been guilty of it in this conversation a little bit. I talked about like actions on the objective and you talked about kicking indoors. There are a lot of tactical professionals who are not kicking indoors or performing actions on the objective. But one thing that I think is consistent across every job in the tactical environment is you have to be prepared to work hard for long periods of time for multiple days in a row or multiple weeks or multiple months in a row. Right. And that's where it comes back to this conversation about like, yes, you definitely have to have a threshold level of strength where you're able to perform all of the resistance type of tasks and be powerful enough to like subdue a person or whatever it is. But if you want to keep building beyond the threshold, you're going to get a lot for your money. If you're focusing on building your ability to recover and building your ability to endure when you're working for really long periods. Well, too, I think there's the, I mean, and not to like dive down a rabbit hole on it, but there's the cognitive piece of it too. Like having 
being more aerobically sound, being able to intake more oxygen, handle more oxygen, you know, blah, 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 blah. There are studies that have shown that that contributes to higher levels of cognition, higher levels of concentration, like fine motor skills. And so, I mean, yeah, you're right. We, we're kind of guilty of, you know, the kicking indoors and the actions on and that sort of stuff. And the examples I'll use is with the community I used to work with, with pararescue, like it was medical procedures. And so like being able to, you know, go from absolute chaos down into, you know, dealing with a medical situation, having lower heart rate, having all of that stuff come into effect to be able to execute that better than the guy who creates so much tension because all he's done is resistance training. I mean, it should be pretty obvious why that would be important. And that applies to every job that I can think of within tactical professions, right? Is regardless of what your specific role or specialty is, being able to perform that technical task in some sort of emergency situation is kind of what defines tactical. Like you're going to do things that might be something that a civilian does here. You're just going to do it in a much more chaotic environment. And that means you have to be able to function under various types of stress, including physical stress. Especially officers building PowerPoints. I think having an aerobic base, 100%. Or an aerobic base for that is incredibly important. <laughs> oh yeah. Those, uh, those late night staff X's, you got to be well conditioned to like keep it up all the way through. Well, and I think too, one thing that you sort of touched on a little bit with the ACFT, and I think something that the ACFT highlights, and really all of these kind of new, I don't know, tactical, you know, PT tests highlight is this need to be able to balance strength and endurance. And so when we pose this question of like our tactical athletes, strength athletes or endurance athletes, it's a little bit tongue in cheek because ultimately they're both. And I think that there is a little bit of stigma or fear around, you know, taking a dude who has spent his whole life, you know, maybe he's played football, he's lifted weights, he's, you know, got a thousand pound total and he, he can do all these things. And then you, you try to introduce to him this idea of, of doing endurance training. Most guys freak out about that because they're going to, you know, I mean, we all heard it. I'm going to lose gains. I'm going to lose size, whatever. And I think that just, you know, comes down to poor management of training variables as opposed to this idea that strength and endurance can't coexist. And I think from a, from a training standpoint, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I can't think of a single individual in the military who is at such a high level of strength that they can't be at a competitive level of endurance at the same, like nobody is winning powerlifting world records. And again, I'm thinking in my head right now, so I don't get in trouble. No one is competing in the world's strongest man competition such that they can't add endurance to their training. And conversely, no one is competing at such a high level of endurance in the Olympics that it would not behoove them to introduce some strength stuff. The point there is that the metrics that anybody needs to hit to be successful tactically, none of those are so high that you need to sacrifice the alternative to achieve it. If that makes sense. And I'm, like I said, I'm sure I fresh, I'm sure I made somebody mad because they're off chasing some powerlifting world record and they shouldn't be, you know, running, but. And I think, to be realistic about like the situation we're dealing with in the tactical population, right. Is the, you started thinking of like individual people by name when you started brainstorming those people, because there's such a small population of them. I don't think we need to be concerned about 
convincing guys who are at an elite level in one to do a little bit of the other. I think we need to be concerned about mostly getting people who are below the desired threshold in both, or maybe they're doing pretty good at one and are worried that they'll lose that if they develop the other or something. I think we're not really worried about the people on the, the right side of the bell curve, right? We want to be focusing on like squishing the bell curve so that it's positively skewed so that the area left of the, I, I'm getting way too nerdy. I'll stop. Just say you may have but, to draw this on a whiteboard. Yeah, absolutely. That'll <laughs> happen eventually. But like our interventions need to be addressed at the people that are on the low end on the performance spectrum. And those people can absolutely simultaneously improve in both in really big ways. And like what came to mind a couple minutes ago, we were talking is during this ACFT implementation, we've had a, not a huge number, but like a reasonably significant number of people who don't finish the test the first time they take it, right? Like they, they DNF the ACFT. Um, sometimes it's because of heat. Sometimes it's because of like exhaustion from all of the events, quote unquote. Um, but even the people who are finishing it, it was like accepted as common knowledge that you were going to take like a two minute hit on your two mile time because you were so fatigued from the events that preceded it. And I worry because the events that precede it are actually not that much volume compared to what I would want a tactical professional to be able to deal with in an emergency situation. Um, you're doing like three reps, maybe six reps of deadlift. You're throwing a ball a couple times. You're doing like 30 to 50 pushups. If you're doing pretty well, one brief anaerobic event and some pull up kind of things. And if, or if that, if that amount of work takes two minutes off your two mile runtime, your aerobic conditioning is in really bad shape. Yes. Like that means your ability to recover is not good. Uh, and that's, that's something that has direct relevance. Like some people get frustrated that there's a time limit on the test and that constricted amounts of time to recover. And it's frustrating from a logistic standpoint or administrative standpoint. But I think that does a really good job of building into the test an assessment of your ability to recover from bouts of exercise and then continue to perform. And that's all about aerobic capacity. Yeah. And I mean, again, I would, I would make the claim that training, like if, if you took, if you gave me a guy or girl who had the requisite levels of strength to pass the ACFT or, you know, input whatever military test, but was struggling on the endurance component of it, which is usually nine times out of 10, what the deal is. Like I, I have more people approach me struggling with the endurance piece than I do struggling with the strength piece. So given that, I think people sort of overestimate the amount of work required to reach a functional level of endurance. It's actually a lot simpler, I think, than most people would, would think it's just, it, it needs to be done correctly. And that's something that, you know, again, I'll speak to H2F specifically on this as, as we've kind of pushed strength coaches out into the, into the brigades. And as we've started to kind of analyze some of the training that these companies and detachments and platoons and battalions are doing, I would say that the reason why you see a lot of folks struggling on the later half of that test, which you know, coincidentally is the aerobic piece, is because a lot of time and effort is being put into the 
calisthenics into the strength training. And, uh, and we've sort of talked about this a little bit already, but into the reps and sets and that sort of thing. And then on the endurance side, all you see is like go out for a 60 to 90 minute run and then maybe like a team ruck. So there's no real, no one is really putting much effort into progressively overloading, you know, the aerobic base, building the aerobic base, touching on the aerobic stuff. And I think that yeah. contributes again to this misconception that like it's hard to do it. And really it's not that hard. I think that that's making me think, cause you talked about like all the charts people are used to seeing in strength and conditioning textbooks and like how they're all familiar with them. And I'm thinking back cause I, it wasn't that long ago when I did my CSCS and I don't recall any kind of chart in there talking about like, depending on the athlete's goals, what percentage of their conditioning should be low intensity, steady state, and what percent should be threshold stuff and what percent should be tempo stuff and what percent should be interval stuff. And like, how to blend those together, but in well, the endurance coach not, world, it's because yeah, there's but it, not any charts in that book. Yeah. Unless but if you get into shit. the endurance coach world, if you get into the endurance world, that stuff like coaches have systems for that and they are keeping track of like yes. what, how much time athletes are spending in each category and like building an appropriate foundation. And I think all the army seems to do is like sporadic threshold stuff, which is not necessarily producing the results they want. And there's kind of an unwillingness to take a step back and like build a foundation of low intensity, steady state, even though there's tons of evidence. Yeah. Well, I mean, what it is. So I think there's two things going here. One, well, maybe they're related. They are related, but one is this idea of, okay, whatever, whatever the distance is on a given day, I'm going to do that as hard as, possible and i'll blame sergeant majors for this kind of jokingly but it's this idea of like okay you know today it's gonna be five miles we're gonna run as hard as we can for five miles you know and tomorrow it's three miles we're gonna run as hard as we can for three miles and it's 10 miles or it's 12 mile rock we're gonna rock as hard as we can for 12 miles. so there's that and then i think you know like you said combined with that and probably contributing to that is this attitude around being being slow is the same as being weak and like if you were to go out and run like heaven forbid your soldiers go out and run and they feel refreshed at the end of it like if that's the case they clearly didn't go hard enough they're not tough enough like the terrorists win and i think that that again creates this this paradigm or feeds into this paradigm which is obviously a much larger conversation but this idea that you always have to go hard all the time I think that that holds true more so in the strength world where intent plays a big role, especially as we look to develop maximal strength, as we look to develop power, because like we said this whole time, even though they're predominantly, at least what we think they're predominantly endurance athletes, the strength power piece is still important. So intent and effort is important there. The endurance side, I think is a little bit more nuanced because in order to reap the benefits, you have to go slow, slower than you think you need to go. And so doing that requires that you make this mental shift from the top down from like a leadership standpoint, but just this mental shift around, okay, today we're going to take it slow and we're going to take a lot of days slow because we've got to build up this aerobic base and create the requisite physio physiology to actually then put the performance on top of it so that we can go out and execute this two mile run or whatever it is. 
have I shared with you, I got this from Mark Taysom. Um, have I shared with you his, like, how do you know if a workout was good thing? I don't know. Maybe. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. I think it works really well at communicating it to soldiers. I used it a ton of times teaching master fitness trainer. I think every single class I taught, I made sure I hit it within like the first three days whenever they were ready to have the conversation. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, like, it works well with an audience. You get them to be involved in the conversation, but you start out asking them, how do you know if a workout was good like for the army setting? Like, Hey, PT's ending. How do you know you had a good PT session? Right. And consistently the answers we always get are, am I sore? Am I tired? And am I sweaty? Right. That's what, that's what everybody's looking for. Like leaders want to see soldiers suffering and in a puddle on the ground. That's how they know it was good training. Right. So Mark's response to that, and Mark makes it a little more complicated and funnier because that's who he is. Um, but I've distilled it down a little bit and it's all right, cool. Like if the metrics of a successful workout are soreness, tiredness, and sweatiness, I'll give you the fastest workout of your life. Meet me in the sauna at 2 AM and I'll punch you in the face. <laughs> right? You're going to be sore because you just got punched in the face. You're going to be tired because it's the middle of the night. You're going to be sweaty because you're in a sauna. We've accomplished good training apparently. And like, even that there are some misconceptions there. Like Fort Carson, when I was there, had to put up signs saying like saunaing is not PT. Like don't spend PT hours sitting in here. (laughs) Like people think that sweaty, like getting sweaty means you must have somehow inherently worked hard when it's, they're related. Like sweating will happen when you're working hard, but it's not a measure of success. You can have a great workout without getting sweaty. You can have a great workout without getting sore. That's not saying either of those things are bad. You will also definitely get sore at some point. You will also definitely get sweaty at some point. You'll also definitely get tired, but those aren't how we measure it. And that's kind of at the core of this whole mops and mows concept, right? Is those are kind of measures of performance. Did you complete the task you were assigned, which was to like fatigue your soldiers for an hour, an hour and a half. Cool but they're not measures of effectiveness. The only way you can measure effectiveness is, are you getting better in the long term? Are you making progress towards your goal? So like step one, we have to know what the heck that goal is. And step two, we have to somehow be assessing and reassessing, whether that's with formal assessments or just like benchmarks throughout our training. We need to be checking if we're making progress because you can work hard every day and not make progress. That's not good training. Well, and so that I think brings up an interesting point and not to like dive down a programming rabbit hole, but so thinking about endurance and I'm in my head kind of conceptualizing your archetypical, you know, tactical athlete wanting, they have a sufficient base of strength because that's basically all that they've been doing for their career. But now this ACFT pops up and they need to build some aerobic conditioning So, you know, talking about measures of performance, measures of effectiveness, you know, that type of thing, going hard versus going slow. An easy way, you know, for the four people that are listening to us talk about this, to conceptualize the training side of it is when we are building the aerobic base, when we are building the physiology, the intent is to focus on being effective. So what I mean by that is if, you know, we're using heart rate, for example, I'm not going to prescribe to you a pace. I'm going to prescribe to you a physiological metric or a subjective metric. It's still based in physiology. So maybe it's RPE, yeah. maybe it's like, you know, 
can you hold a conversation? Yeah. Hold a conversation. Nose breathing, you know, all this type of stuff. Zone two, whatever heart rate zone, you know, you can get all into the weeds on that. But the idea there is that what we are interested in is not a performance outcome. It's a physiological outcome. And I'll, you know, I'll explain that to guys and that usually clicks and that forms the bulk of our training. So you'll hear some people talk about like 80, 20, you know, 80% easy, 20% hard. And like, you know, okay, fine. Fair. If that's what you want to use, that's fine. Um, I think a good, a good target for people to shoot for is, you know, maybe there's three days a week of training where they're, they're focusing on endurance. And so two of those days, especially early on, two of those days, or maybe even three of those days are going to be focused on the physiological side of things. So, okay, let's say you strap on a heart rate monitor and you go run for 45 minutes, three times a week, and you keep your heart rate relatively low and you can breathe through your nose and you can have a conversation. That's really, really good training. It's not necessarily going to make you sweaty or make you sore or tired. Even in some cases, you'll probably feel better afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. You will probably feel better. And one of the things I don't, I don't know who, who said it, I'm definitely not making this up. Somebody else has claimed to this, but that type of training, you should be bored more than you should be tired. Like you shouldn't stop because you're tired. You should stop because you're kind of bored. If that's the case, then you're, you're probably going at the right pace. So again, that would all fall into the effectiveness bucket or the physiology bucket or the base building bucket. And then the other piece, which I think ironically is what people spend most of their time on if they're not doing this correctly is the performance oriented training. So in that case, if I have, again, somebody who's, who's trying to just kind of get is, is new to this and is trying to build some aerobic base. So that third session, you know, or maybe it's the tail end of one of those longer runs, we're going to focus on performance objectives, which are going to be based off of your goal pace for whatever the event is. If it's the ACFT, it's the two mile. Okay, cool. So where are you at now? And, and we usually do that from a baseline assessment. Where do you want to be? So like, what do you want to score on that test? We can deduce that into, into a pace, you know, per mile or whatever, per 400. And that then becomes the objective that, that we want to hit. So the difference there is that we're not so much concerned with the physiology we're more concerned with the performance of it so there's a time and a place to implement this type of training you don't necessarily need to do it for somebody that's brand new but as you get closer to your event whatever it might be the percentage of your training that is focusing on that performance outcome needs to shift so that that starts to take up the majority of your training because at the end of the day you can build up all the aerobic base you want you can run you know slowly for miles and miles and miles and miles but you're being tested on, in this case, a two mile at a specific pace that has a specific cutoff. So you need to be able to hit that thing. So we have to spend some training time working on that thing. And so that's kind of the, I would say quick, but that wasn't very quick. That's kind of the way that I think about it from a training standpoint is these two buckets, your, your physiology bucket and your performance bucket. And then depending on where we're at in, in sort of the training phase or the gear, or how far away we are from our test, the percentage or the, the amount of time that we spend on each of those buckets is just going to shift based on what we want to prioritize. Do you spend a lot of time talking to guys? And I'll, I'll preface this by saying, I think because of the talks people have given to justify the ACFT, a lot of those hinge around and to justify H2F and to justify all sorts of things, they hinge around injury rates, like a lot of leaders and for good reason are very focused on readiness and readiness means that you're available to deploy or participate or whatever it is. 
And you can't do that if you're injured. Um, so a lot of this hinges around trying to control our time lost due to injury. Um, there's a whole conversation about whether we can prevent injuries or not, but we can definitely have like an outcome that is fewer days lost due to injury in our population. And because of the way we've trained and a variety of other reasons, you'll see data points that say the majority of our injuries are lower body musculoskeletal overuse injuries due to running. Um, and so I think certainly part of that is that people are constantly doing threshold runs. Uh, I think we can mitigate some of it without necessarily reducing total foot time with some of those easier runs, but there is great data to talk about how foot time correlates well with risk of injury. Um, the flip side of that is that the faster you are, the less likely you are to get injured running. And the only way to get real fast is to do some of it. Um, but how much do you talk to people about how to do conditioning other than running? So that's one of those things where I, I guess the short answer is a lot. Now I will say that the, you know, if you row and bike, for example, that is not necessarily going to directly correlate with running performance. Like you, you can physiologically build a robust aerobic system by rowing and biking. And that's cool. But the best way to think of that, I think is like you, you now have a, a bigger, I don't know, balloon, whatever, but because running is its own skill, there is a skill component to it that you do have to become proficient at because if you, if you avoid running altogether, you never run, you only bike, you only row, you only do non-impact stuff. Yes. You may have a low resting heart rate. You may be aerobically fit, but you may be so inefficient at running that you require so much more oxygen to just complete the motion, like literally complete the motion yep. of running, that you are that much more fatigued and that much more ineffective. Yeah. You have to improve running economy and the way to improve running economy is running. And that I think is something that goes overlooked is that running, I mean, in as much as you could make the argument that it's evolutionary and that it's a natural thing and, and okay, cool. But it is still at the end of the day, a skill and you still do have to spend time working on it. If for no other reason than like literally to psychologically be better. And that, again, that's something that I do spend a lot of time talking to guys about is the psychology behind it. And I'm guilty of this too, where you know, I'm at a point now with training where I enjoy running, but historically I've always hated it. And so as soon as I go out running in my head, it's like, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. That drives up your heart rate. That drives up all these other, you know, it's a chain reaction. You end up using more oxygen, you know, next thing you know, you suck at running, not because you're a bad runner, but because you've compounded the stress in on your body because of all these other external factors. So I guess to answer your question, Further away from an event, whatever that event is, deployment, you know, PT test, arbitrary 5K on the weekend, further away from that, you can spend more time doing non-impact type stuff. Because again, the goal is at that point, just a, a larger question of physiology. But as you get closer to the event, you do need to ultimately trend more towards whatever that event is going to be. If it's a triathlon, that's a whole different conversation. We've now got to think about swimming and biking and running. If it's just running, okay, cool. We've got to introduce more running. Like, I don't think we can nail down a particular number of miles you need to complete each week, you know, for whatever event you're trying to do. But to, in my opinion, at least, 
the injuries that we see from running are less correlated with running itself and more correlated with either one, you have not done enough of it and you're just trying to jump into the deep end. Two, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as just bad footwear. I mean, you see a lot of guys avoiding running shoes because it doesn't look cool in their CrossFit gym and they're trying to do a two miler and Metcons and wondering why their knees hurt. And then three, again, it's just a mismanagement of, of training variables where they've spent so much time on resistance training. They've built up a lot of tension. Their body is in a particular position and now they're, you know, introducing all this impact and it, it creates, creates injury. So, you know, I look at your higher level runners, your Olympic level runners, those guys don't really get hurt running very often. It's the dudes that, you know, did Fran on Monday and then tried to do a three mile sprint on Tuesday and wonder why their foot feels weird. It's like, well, probably cause you're not doing it right. I like that your prototypical tactical athlete is a CrossFitter <laughs> and my, my prototypical tactical athlete is like, I'm trying to get them to work out period. I would say my prototypical tactical athlete owns CrossFit shoes. They may not be a CrossFitter, but they certainly either have nobles or Metcons not to name brand names. <laughs> I think there's just as much of a concern. And this depends on what kind of organization you're in and like what age of tactical professional you're working with and like how long they've been in the career and all sorts of stuff. But like, especially when you start talking about real junior service members, regardless of service, I think there are plenty where it's not that they don't have running shoes because they spent the money on CrossFit shoes or lifting shoes or Yeezys or whatever they spent it on. I think there are a lot of them who like only have one pair of fitness shoes and they've been using that pair of fitness shoes for all of their fitness activities for like three years. And it's got holes in the sides and the soles worn down and all of these things. And I don't, I don't know the solution to that. I'd love the solution to be that, all these organizations issue shoes, but that comes into a whole conversation about like, how do we do that effectively? I think the army tried to do that a couple of years ago. Um, I don't really know what the model is to make that work. Um, but there, there is a conversation to be had there about having the equipment for the things you do does kind of matter. Um, especially when you're talking yes. about like doing it a lot and not getting hurt. Um, it is kind of going to be a little bit important. Well, and I think too, uh, like, regardless of what camp you fall in and, and like the footwear debate in fitness is, you know, hyper political, not Democrat, Republican, more so like barefoot versus hokas. I think regardless of which camp, which camp you fall in, there's no way of getting around the fact that having good footwear is going to be better than having bad footwear. Like if, if your buddy is the biggest proponent of barefoot shoes and like, that's all he's used for the last five years. Well, the reason why that works for him is because that's what he's been using for five years. So when you go out and buy, you know, your little buy rooms or whatever, it's not going to feel very good because you haven't been using those. Similarly, if you've had this huge heel or whatever, and hokas are like your thing, you know, that's fine. That works for you. I, I, I guess what I'm getting at here is like, you can adapt to anything. You can adapt it, to anything. But quality still matters. Quality matters. And what I have seen more often than not, when I have an athlete come to me and say that they hate running and it hurts their feet, 
I will ask them what their footwear looks like. And when they change that to an effective shoe, and I'm not going to like, uh, you know, look to a professional for what that answer is, but if they change that to an effective shoe, it really does make a difference. And sometimes it is that easy to avoid the injury and to become better at endurance training is just by having the right kit. So, yeah, I mean, to your point, it would be ideal if that was issued the same way we issue, you know, rifles and sidearms. But again, it's, it's not the sexiest thing in the world to get a pair of running shoes versus a high powered weapon. Yeah. And nobody's going to want to wear whatever the issued shoe is. No. It will instantly become the least cool thing. The new balance, uh, whatever the dad shoe is, the new yep. balance number, whatever. Well, first Arnold will love it, but <laughs> nobody else will. <laughs> So I guess the summary is because we, we danced around. No, we didn't dance around. We answered it directly early when we danced. But I think the appropriate way to train, if you are a tactical athlete, regardless of the branch, regardless of the, you know, the mission, whatever, the bias should be towards endurance with strength serving as kind of a backbone to that. So, you know, some of this, I think, is related to the idea that there is no, there is no deadlift number. That, well, there is for the ACFT, but like there is no arbitrary strength metric that you need to hit. Um, but we can make a case that there is an arbitrary aerobic number that you need to hit, whether we use VO2 max or some other you know, number for physiology, like you will behoove yourself by having a strong aerobic base while being decently strong in the gym. How you do that is going to be, you know, a different conversation around managing training variables, what the programming looks like. We dived into that a little bit. There's more to be said about it, obviously, like it's, it's very nuanced, but managing those training variables, you know, hitting the track a couple of times a week, hitting the trails a couple of times a week, getting into the gym once or twice a week. I mean, if you do that and you keep it simple across the board, chances are you will probably end up in a much better place than a sauna at 2 a.m., getting punched in the face i would think and i think like not necessarily i guess one exception that comes to mind is if somebody has a severe strength deficit like if the person is not able to perform the baseline tasks like the, the one that comes to mind most often is like in artillery there is a very obvious mm -hmm. strength minimum of like being able to transport heavy rounds a fixed distance and load them at a fixed height. Got it. Like that's going to be crucial that you identify that first and fix that deficit. If you have it, a lot of people are discovering they have an upper body pulling deficit or whatever it is like identifying those and fixing them is important, but I do think people overestimate the volume of strength training that's necessary to, to make serious improvements. Um, I've worked with a few people over the last few months. Um, one in particular, busy guy, full-time job in the army, family, hobbies, all that stuff. And so he made an upfront decision that he was only going to be able to strength train one day a week. Um, so he took the, the program we had talked about and jammed it into one day, did like only the core lifts. Not really. I don't know if he like really added accessories because he had to fill up a whole workout with all the lifts he would have done over three days in a week. <laughs> and he made massive progress. Yeah. Um, he did really, really well. And I think part of it is just that we don't a lot of soldiers don't, or a lot of tactical athletes don't let themselves recover enough to see how important the recovery piece of that equation is. Um, and that comes back to worrying about effectiveness. We're not looking for you doing the most you possibly can in an individual session. We're looking for 
the outcomes in terms of getting your body to adapt as much as possible. And a lot of that comes from balancing it and rest and then having a really good aerobic foundation that allows you to tolerate more volume. No, it's true. And I I mean, again, this easily can become a whole separate episode, but you know, one, one challenge I would issue that's related to this topic as it regards strength training and, you know, kind of minimum effective dose and that sort of thing, which again, clearly can branch off into its own episode. But the one thing I would say is like, take a very, very close look at what you're doing in the gym and like, ask yourself if that, you know, if that finisher, if that high rep accessory thing, if, you know, whatever movement, whatever rep, whatever, ask yourself if, if you can objectively point to how that has improved your outcomes, then I would leave that in. But if you are seriously considering all of your training and you're looking at that particular movement and that particular scheme, and you recognize that it's just junk volume, then take that out and then roll with, roll with that reduced volume for a couple of weeks and see what happens. And that's one thing that I see, you know, all the time with guys that I work with, whether it's online or in person, like we trim away a ton of fat. And at first it freaks people out because it's like, I'm only doing like, I'm only in the gym for like 45 minutes or whatever. But every single one of those 45 minutes is targeted at a specific outcome. And we can directly tie that movement, that rep scheme, that intensity level to the performance on whatever thing we're trying to achieve and you know again that that relates as well to the endurance side however you know asterisk the one thing that is different on the endurance side is that you do need to accumulate a lot of volume to get that outcome so again whether it's 10 miles a week is your total or 100 miles a week is your total what we're more concerned with is just building the volume. Whereas on the strength side, what we're more concerned with is surgical targeted intent. And I'll, I'll stop it there because again, this could become its own episode, but I think it's important to kind of do a, a critical analysis of your own training and figure out where's the fluff and what can you take out? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've identified the risk of straying into too many other topics. So we should probably wrap it up here. So I think <laughs> the key takeaway one more. We've, we've, we've talked around this a lot, but the bottom line here, I think, is uh, it depends. Yeah, it depends. But mostly, we're